Thank you for listening to the Deep Creek Pulpit, the preaching ministry of Pastor Joshua Hitchcock, pastor of Deep Creek Baptist Church in Harrodsburg, Kentucky, where we seek to be faithful to Scripture and relevant to everyday life. If you will, open your Bibles to the book of James. The book of James. Now, as we get started, I love homegrown tomatoes. One of the things that I enjoy is growing vegetables, and one reason is that it reminds me of my grandfather. Every time I'm planting, watering, or picking, I think of my grandparents. But also, I love fresh vegetables. I I love to see the fruit of all the preparatory work. And our obedience to God is like a homegrown tomato. Our obedience is the fruit of the gospel at work in our lives. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Paul, Paul described the gospel at work in this way. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. The Spirit of God is responsible for saving sinners. And just how I love seeing my plants grow... But the point of growing these plants is what grows on them. Our obedience is the fruit of the gospel at work in our life. I've titled our series in James, Gospel Grown Obedience, because he's going to be very practical and, and, and very practical in how our life plays out as Christians and obedience to him. But he's very clear that our obedience flows out of our faith towards God. So as we dig in, we see that this book is written by James. Now, James is the half-brother of Jesus who once thought Jesus was out of his mind. James then was one of the witnesses of the resurrection who saw the risen Christ. I'm sure that changed his mind. And he became an elder in the church at Jerusalem, as we see in Acts chapter 15. James could boast that he is the brother of Jesus, but here in as he introduces this letter, he refers to him as a bondservant. This shows James's humility and purpose, and we ought to express that same level of humility. He says, I'm just a servant, and I have a purpose, and that's to do the will of Christ. As he's writing to a primarily Jewish Christian audience who have suffered poverty and persecution for their faith, and they've been dispersed in different parts of the country. He writes to them. We get to the content of the letter and our passage today, which is beginning in verse 2. So I'm going to read that. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, 
and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. My, my kids like to sing the song, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And we sing it over and over. We watch it on YouTube, different versions, and they love that. I've known two people in my life that seem to always radiate with joy. One was an old college friend named Jason. I can't even remember his last name. I guess that's a sign I'm getting old. But we nicknamed him Smiles. Because he was always smiling, I don't think the guy was ever in a bad mood. The other, her name was Miss Jimmy Ray Pittman, and she was an older lady at First Baptist Church of Metter, Georgia, where I had the privilege of serving as youth pastor for two years. And she was always so excited, always exuberant, and loved to sing about her Savior. I loved being around her because her joy lifted my spirits each time. And Christians ought to be joyful people. We are people who have experienced God's amazing grace, and that's something that we ought to be excited about. Yet, let's be honest, difficulties come in our life and often stifle that joy. So when we come to the text today, and it says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Joy and trials are not two words that I would think of putting together. But yet here we are. What we see here in the following verses in verses 2 through 18 is how Christians ought to respond during the trials of our life. And number one, the first thing that we see very clearly is that trials give us an opportunity for rejoicing. As James began, he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encountered various trials. He doesn't say if, but when the Jewish Christians will experience trials And the first thing I want us to see here also is that trials are a reality for every Christian. Jesus never promised that the Christian life would be easy and a bed of roses, free from difficulty. In fact, he says the opposite, that all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And not just persecution, we suffer the effects of a fallen world where there is sickness and disease and death. We will encounter various trials. The second part of that is we will experience various kinds of trials. Some trials will be relatively light and momentary, like being stuck behind a slow-moving car when you're already late for work. Some will be relatively larger and more serious, like a diagnosis of cancer. Some are relatively short. Some will be more permanent and lasting until the end of our life. Every Christian may not be going through the same type of trial all at the same time, or we may not experience the trials in the same way. 
Yet we will encounter different types of trials throughout our life. Some of you may be going through one now or have been through one recently. And if neither of those are true, then I can guarantee you're about to go through one. Yet trials, James says here, is an opportunity for us to express joy. How on earth? Now, first off, James is not telling us to take pleasure in pain. Our joy is not found in how much a trial hurts, but rather in what it produces in us. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, that the Christian response to trials is to learn how to count properly. And this is what he means. Paul says to count it all joy. He says biblical accounting means that we see the parts in the light of the whole. That requires us to think about our trials in light of the bigger picture of God's purposes. You often hear me say that the Bible is one story of God's plan to redeem the world in Jesus. And that story has never ended. It continues. We are a part of that story. It's true that the scriptures are complete, but God is still working all things according to the counsel of his will, orchestrating everything for his glorious purpose. So when we go through a rough patch or difficult season or get some bad news, we have to stop and think, what is God doing? James gives us some help here. He says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God brings trials into our life to test our faith. You can think of the story of Job. Trials were a test to Job to see if he would stay faithful to God. Trials are a test to see if we are authentically Christian or if we will fall away. If you think of the parable of the soils. The seeds were planted in different types of soil. And some seeds sprouted up quickly. They looked like they would bear fruit. It looked like a vibrant plant, but things came in and choked out the the joy of of that person. And that was symbolic of a Christian who would, uh, somebody that's not a Christian, but who appeared to be one and fell away. Are we genuine? So, so God brings trials into our life to test our faith. We can consider it joy then when we go through a trial and we pass the test. We have endured through the trial and been found faithful. The trial tests our faith, but also the trial is God's means to conform us to the image of Christ. It says here, let, it, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect Incomplete, lacking in nothing. So there's only one person that's ever been perfect, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But our trials, the process of going through trials is essentially God's process to making us into the image of Christ, to growing us into holiness. It is a essentially a quick path to get to there. The goal of trials is to make us more like Jesus. In Romans 8, 
Romans 8, 28. I'll turn there really quick. I, he says that God causes all things, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, notice in Romans, this verse here, God causes all things. Now, what encompasses all things? Well, all things. The good things, the blessings in our life, the the difficulties in our life, those hard spots, those rough patches. God is causing those things in our life that are unpleasant to work together for good. Well, how is this going to happen? To those who love God, to those who are calling to, to his purpose. Well, what is that good that he intends? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So when God brings trials into our life, he is going to use those for our good, for his glory, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That is something that we can rejoice over. Dear believer, are you going through a trial? As I said, if you're not in one right now, you may have just come out of one or you're about to enter one. But take this time as an opportunity to rejoice because God is using this to test the genuineness of your faith. And if you are in Christ, you will pass the test. Even if you aren't really a Christian, rejoice because God is revealing to you through the trial that your faith is not authentic and you need to come to him. Rejoice because God is using this to draw you to himself. And God wants to use our trials to make us more like Jesus. The second thing I want us to see in this text is that trials reveal our need for wisdom. Continuing on, obviously it said that the trial, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But then verse 5 says, but if you lack wisdom, then what are we supposed to do? And so trials reveal our need for wisdom. When trials come, it reveals to us that we lack wisdom. We may have a robust theological knowledge. We may know what the Bible says about suffering and and our fallen world. And we may know theologically that trials will come. We may know a lot of scripture and can defend biblical truth passionately. But when trials come, it reveals to us that mere knowledge is insufficient. Wisdom is knowledge applied in real life. I have to know how to use that knowledge. And when trials come, we often don't know what to do. What, what do I do next? What should my next course of action be? How do I respond to this or that? So as we see here, the first thing is that we see what we are to ask for. and We are to ask for wisdom. What is wisdom? The first thing, we're not asking to get out of the trial. We're not asking God to get me out of this situation. We're asking God for wisdom in the situation. We're not asking God for mere knowledge, for that's insufficient, but we're asking for wisdom or how to navigate through the trial with the knowledge we have. When we walk through trials, we realize that We don't know all that is going on. We don't see our situation from every angle, and we lack the experience to know what to do. 
And one commentator says that these limitations in these areas leads to our lacking wisdom of how to handle that. So we ask God for wisdom. So again, how do we, how do we get wisdom? Well, number one, simple. We ask for it. We see who to ask. We ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Obviously, why should we ask for wisdom? Because we lack it and because God promises to give it. We all need wisdom in how to go through the trials of our life. The next thing we see here, though, is how, how we ought to ask. It says here, as we ask God for wisdom, verse 6, we must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What prevents us from getting the wisdom we desperately need is that we don't ask in faith. I think what has caused a lot of our problems in America is prayerlessness. We don't pray, and we believe we ought to pray, and that's the right thing to do. We often tell people that they're in our thoughts and prayers, but very seldom do we actually pray. How often do we actually pray for God to answer and do a mighty work outside of the dinnertime blessing? When is the last time you poured out your hearts before God and prayed believing Legitimate believing that he would answer. I think often when trials come, prayer is our last resort when we've tried everything else. When it ought to be our first. We must ask in faith, not doubting. You know, we we go through trials. Those difficult things come into our life. We try everything imaginable to, to fix the situation. And when all seems hopeless, then, then we go to God. Then when everything else has been exhausted, then we, we go to the one who we should have gone to first. But even when we go to God in those times, do we really believe he will do what he says he will do? Do we really believe he will answer? Or is there a little piece of us in the back of my mind? Well, I'm going to pray. I've tried everything else. I, I guess I'll pray now and we'll see if God shows up. And often we pray doubting. We pray, but we really don't pray in faith. Are you trusting the Lord in the trial? We desperately need God's wisdom to navigate our trials so that we can go through them with biblical joy. But we must trust God that he will give us the wisdom to navigate these trials. Number three. Trials force us to trust in God's resources. Now, the next section here seems a bit odd and misplaced. But as God gives us wisdom to navigate our trials, he enables us to see where we ought to put our trust. And here he contrasts a rich man and a poor man. The first thing I want us to see, we're going to go a little bit backwards here. Verse 10, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. James is not saying it is a sin to be wealthy. But what are you trusting in? What are you pursuing as your life goal? 
Notice he gives an example in verse 11 of the sun and scorching wind causing the grass to wither. And in the same way, in the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. It's not a sin to have possessions, but what are we pursuing? Are we pursuing the glory of God or are we pursuing stuff? As we enter various trials, we realize that money can't buy everything. The wealthy person is humiliated because his riches will fade. That which he has trusted in has left him hopeless and exposed, and therefore he is humiliated. Second, the poor man of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. First, he isn't to glory in the fact that he's poor. Poverty is no more of a joy-filled life than being wealthy. We don't find our ultimate joy in being rich, and we don't find our ultimate joy in being poor. He isn't celebrating poverty because poverty is one of the various trials that we face. Paul himself knew what it was like to be poor and wealthy. He isn't saying that the man of humble circumstances should glory or boast that he will be delivered from poverty because that may not happen. His high position that he is to boast in is his position or his identity in Christ. So that even if he doesn't have anything or stays in this humble circumstance that he finds himself in, he's got everything he needs. He's trusting in God's resources because he's got Christ. The rich will enter trials that no amount of money that they have can get them out of. The poor will enter a trial that no amount of money they desire would deliver them from. When we encounter various trials, it doesn't matter your economic standing because our trust is not in our resources but in God's. You may, you may think that being rich would solve all your problems. Well, if I only made X amount of dollars, then this or that situation would go away. Maybe, but perhaps new ones would then be created. You may think that not having much is the answer. Well, if I don't have a new car and I don't have this and I don't have all these payments, then I don't, I don't owe any, any money to anybody, then I'm better off. But then other problems will arise. Being rich won't solve your problems. Being poor won't solve your problems. The question is, whose resources are you trusting in? It's like the little boy in the sand that I, story that I shared a few weeks ago. He had exhausted all efforts and all resources available to him to remove the rock out of the sandbox. But he didn't use the best resource that he had available, and that was the strength of his father. When we learn to trust in God's resources, we can experience joy in our trials because he gives us the wisdom to navigate them and the resources to get through them. Are you trusting in him? So we trust in God's resources and we ask him for wisdom. The first thing we ought to do when we are faced with a trial is to fall on our knees in prayer. Fall on our knees and God give me wisdom. Give me the resources to endure this season of life. Number four, trials prepare us for our eternal reward. As the text progresses, 
Verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Again, that trial may be temporary or it may be permanent. But the man who endures to the end and at the end, who has passed the test of the trial, will receive the crown of life to those who love him. Again, trials are a test. It's a test to see if we, if our faith is genuine. And if we have passed the test, we will receive that reward. Now, don't think of this crown as like the crown that a king wears, but think of it as a wreath-like crown that a runner would receive in biblical times after he finished, finishes a race. He has endured, he perseveres, he crosses the finish line, and he is rewarded. We can compare it to almost anything you complete and are rewarded. Just a few weeks ago, our own Eli graduated high school. He endured the trial of high school. I imagine that had its own set of trials, I'm sure. But upon completion, he received the reward for enduring the various trials of difficult projects, exams, and other things. Trials prepare us to receive that reward. The various trials of this life are the hurdles that we face in this life. Several years ago, I had been running several 5K races. And one week, I signed up for one of these obstacle course 5Ks. I'm sure you've seen them on, on TV and whatnot. And uh, never done one. And this was an easier one than some of the other ones I could have done. But at the end, I was wet and muddy. Some of the obstacles were easy and some were much more challenging and some I kind of skipped. But we completed the course and I got my medal at the end. And it's kind of like life. We will all face obstacles and various kinds of trials. But they will make us stronger as we seek the Lord for wisdom and rely on his resources. We can approach each one with biblical joy as our joy is not in the difficulty or the trial, but our joy is in what God is doing in us through the trial. Even as we can have joy in trials because God is testing our faith and making us more like Jesus. Let me share a negative aspect of trials. Number five, trials present an opportunity for temptation. Up to this point, I've shared how God puts trials in our life for our good. It is a testing of our faith. It is to to make us more like Jesus. But as you enter a trial, often we are tempted to sin as a result. We enter. I mean, look at Job. Job was found faithful. But remember what Job's wife said when they've lost everything? Job's wife said, why don't you curse God and die? Now, that could be understandable. She just lost her family and her home and their health. Trials often give us an opportunity for temptation. So one may ask, well, if if God... If God is bringing the trial into my life, is is God responsible for tempting me to sin? And James answers that question. 
Verse 13, no one can say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. No, God did not bring you into this trial to tempt you. God is not setting you up for failure. God is not putting a a hurdle in your path to trip you up. We can't blame it on the devil either when we're tempted. Well, the devil made me do it. No, that's not what James says either. Let's see what it says about temptation. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or his own desires. Temptation to sin does not come from the outside. It comes from right here. Often when we're tempted to sin in the midst of a trial... I believe what God is doing is he's trying to get us to look in our hearts. See, what are we desiring more than God? Temptation says when when lust or when that desire is conceived, you have you have followed through on that desire. It gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We are not tempted by God. God is not setting us up for failure. Parents can understand this. You take your kid to the store because you need to get some groceries. And you have to bring your kids along. And it's almost a test in that store whether they are going to be compliant without throwing a fit. And then you walk by the bakery. And then the candy aisle. And then the chip and the snack aisle and... Temptation arises in their little hungry hearts. Oh, can I have this? Can I, can I have that? Can I have that? Well, what do you say as a parent? No, because we can't throw all that in the cart. We don't have the money for that. I just paid 70 bucks to gas to get here. Mom and dad didn't drag their kid into the store to tempt them. And God doesn't do that either. The temptation arises from within. We see something we want and we, we want it and then we sin to get it. Each one is tempted when he's carried away by his own desires. We can't blame God, the devil, or another person or our circumstances. But what ends up happening when we sin is we think, well, if if God had never brought this situation in my life, then none of this would have happened. Oh, but that sinful desire was still there. The trial may have exposed that sinful desire, but that desire came from within. Not from God. Well, if, if so-and-so never did or what he or she did, then I would have never responded that way. Well, if, if my company just paid me better, then I wouldn't have had to falsify those reports. If, it's always someone else's fault, isn't it? James doesn't allow us to do that. We are tempted not by circumstances, not by people, not, not by God, not by the devil, but by our own internal desires. So if we are tempted to sin and we want to know where that temptation came from, then look in the mirror. 
What is it that you so badly desire that you are willing to sin to get it? The Christian's solution for sin then is to realize that God knows what is good for us. He says in verse 17 that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That leads me to my next point. Number six, that trials calls us to focus on the blessings God has given us. When we enter a trial, instead of falling prey to temptation, we need to recognize that God gives us good things. We may not know what that good thing is yet, and especially if we're in that rough patch or a difficult season, we may not know what what good is going to come from this. But he is good and what he does in our lives and what he has in store for us will be good. We may be stripped away of everything we held dear, but trials, through trials, those things prevented us from seeing the good things that come down from the Father. Just yesterday, I was, I saw an old friend that I grew up with post a photo on Facebook of his fortune from his fortune cookie. And it said, be satisfied with what you already own. And what he wrote on his post, he said, this does not compute. And what he means is that he has no understanding of being content with what he already has. He, and, and as I look on his, what he, continue, he always wants more stuff. This quest rooted in discontentment prevents us from seeing the good things that come down from the Father of lights. Trials often remove these things from us so that our joy is not in the thing but in the giver. Our joy is not in stuff or circumstances but in Christ. Remember last week I asked, if only I had blank, I would be happy. Single people may say, if only I had a spouse, I, you know, my life's miserable, I just want to be married. If I only had a spouse, I would be happy. But our joy doesn't come from our spouse, but Christ. And so God may take that person away that you so love. But do you still have joy in Christ? Married people may say, well, if only we had kids, we would be joyful and fulfilled. And then they turn about two or three, and that opinion quickly changes. I love being a dad, but like Job, he may take them away so that our joy is found only in Christ. Abraham was called to sacrifice his only son to show God where his trust lies. Was was he willing to let go of the thing that he loved the most? Maybe you'd say, well, if only I had good health. Well, God may plague you with sickness for the rest of your life. And is your joy still in Christ? Maybe it's money. If only had money, and then God may cause you to lose your job. Maybe it's possessions, and and like my friend, you just want to keep accumulating stuff, and you may lose everything by a fire or tornado. Where is your joy? If our joy is not in Christ, 
then when those things that we hold dear are stripped away from us, we will crumble. But if our joy is in Christ, even when those hard things come and those things that we love so dearly are stripped away, we'll still pass the test. We'll be found faithful. We'll be able to say with Job, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We have to be able to sing the old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be His than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by His nail-pierced hand. Now, that... It's a beautiful hymn. I love singing that. But ask yourself, would you rather be persecuted and suffered for following Christ? Or would you rather have five billion dollars? Five billion dollars sounds about nice, doesn't it? But how you answer that determines whether where your affection is. I'd rather have Jesus than to be the king of a vast domain. Or to be held in sin dread sway, I'd rather have Jesus than anything the world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. Yes, I'd rather be true to his holy name. What if that means nobody ever knows your name or the good things that you've done? What if that means that you die in unknown obscurity? As a, as a pastor, one thing that you see is you see celebrity preachers, big, big, well, well-known, well-established preachers. They're publishing books by the minute. They're invited to all the big conferences. But I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd, I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. Yes, I'd rather be true to his holy name. And what matters is not as is our name known in the world, but is our name in the Lamb's book of life. Are we known by the master? You know, if I wanted worldly applause, then I would jettison my deeply held beliefs about God and his word because those are unpopular today. If I wanted worldwide fame, I would have to forsake the word of God. But I'm not doing that because I'd rather have Jesus. The last verse, we see that the greatest thing that God has given us is his salvation. It says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Trials may take your health. They may take your possessions. They may take away your financial security. They may take away your loved ones. They may even take away your own life, but they can't take away your salvation. This is why Paul, said, this is why Paul says, Philippians, to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I die, I gain Jesus. 
Romans 8, 35-39, Paul says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a trial, isn't it? Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can have joy in our trials because trials removes everything in our lives that take our affection off Christ. Trials test our faith. Church, do you love Jesus supremely or is there something else that you hold dear? Church, I hope that you love Jesus supremely. If you're going through a trial, I would love to be able to pray with you about that. But even more, I hope that you can have such a joy in Christ that even if he takes the thing away that you seem to love the most, that your joy would be found in him and not in the things. Not in your loved ones, not in health or even life, but that your joy would be found in Christ. If you're in here today and you're not walking with the Lord, you may be angry with God because your life is hard because of what he's brought into your life. And the word of God tells us that we'll enter various trials. And in a fallen world, this happens to believers and unbelievers alike. If you're failing the test of faith, then I beg of you, come to faith in Christ today and be born again. Confess your sin to him. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to know everything about your trial or how it's going to play out. You don't even have to like everything in your life right now. Life is hard. But run to the one who promises to love us with a love that is stronger than even death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us.